my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. I went to a Catholic school. There was five black kids in the school. I was one of them. 1986, everybody's driving IROCs and listening to Billy Idol. They're all also listening to Run DMC. They're also listening to Beastie Boys. And they want to hear more. Music was the thing that was clearly the connector. If you started the conversation from what we have in common versus what we have in different, you'll actually be surprised at all of the commonalities you have, and you can build on top of that. That path was the path that I walked my whole career with. I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. We examine that very special mix of the analytics and insights of marketing, math, with that very special excitement, craziness, and sheer creativity, magic, and how those come together to create legendary marketing ideas and businesses. Today, we got the perfect example of someone who has had amazing insights, plus the creative talent to build new products and businesses from them. It's Steve Stout. Steve. 
Steve was in the music business as hip-hop was blowing up. He figured out how that could change movies, music, and advertising, often combining them into one unified effort. He's the CEO and founder of two well-known companies, United Masters, that helps music artists retain control of music, and Translation, a creative agency doing some of the most forward-thinking work in connecting big brands to culture and often the influencers in music and sports as well. He grew up in Queens. A high school injury derailed a possible career as an athlete and set him on another path. We want to get into that path. But before we do that, let's welcome Steve. Welcome Thank you aboard. so much. That's great, man. I like that intro. I got a little teary-eyed. <laughs> and we're going to jump into you in 60 seconds. We're going to ask you some questions, lightning round style. Don't no think too long. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. So here we go. Do you prefer Manhattan or Queens? Manhattan. Chocolate or vanilla? Vanilla. Eminem or Dr. Dre? Dr. Dre. Yankees or Mets? Mets. Giants or Jets? I hate them both. <laughs> it's about to get harder. Secret talent? Seen around corners. Favorite city? New York. This is going to be a really tough one. Best live concert? Wow. i tell you the one I haven't seen. I would love to have seen Bob Marley play live. And it's very hard to find anybody who's seen it. Yeah. Have you seen him live? No, no. You ask people who's seen And I have a house in Jamaica. I love Jamaica. I've never seen him live. Yeah, the best live concert I've ever been to, Beyonce. Smartest person you know? The smartest person I know is Ben Horowitz. Hardest working celebrity you've managed? I can tell you the hardest working celebrity I've worked with. Is? LeBron James. Worst fad or fashion trend you've participated in? Everybody was wearing yellow pants. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a part of everybody was doing it. Who would play you in a movie? Nas. Proudest achievement? Starting a family. What's one food you'd never eat? I don't like any, like, it's a substance, like a jelly, jellyfish, jelly, anything jelly. Like, I'm, I'm not touching that. Jelly's right? out. Yeah. Okay, final one. Where was your last vacation? My last vacation was in Paris. Okay, let's get started. Great quote from you. Music moves culture. What do you mean by that? Culture really is a set of rules in which a group of people live by and move by. Music has always been one of the greatest indicators of where the world is moving to. If you listen to the lyrics, if you listen to the subject matter, where the perspective of the song is coming from, where the artist is coming from themselves, it'll tell you a lot if you follow that line. Most people don't follow that line. And when I got into the marketing business, what I wanted to do was use that line around music and the culture that it was an indicator of to remove models of segmentation. When I got into the business, Bob, the thing that was most appalling to me was 18 to 24 black, 18 to 24 white, 18 to 24 Hispanic. These things don't even mean anything. There are fake segmentation media metrics that was created at a time when I guess it mattered. But it really didn't matter at the time when MTV came around, but yet it was still a currency that was being traded upon. And I think it made no sense. And I always felt like music proved that model out, but everyone kept on refuting it because it was a good business to be in segmentation studies. So you obfuscate that and keep going back to reach and general audience demographics. In the 60s, before FM really took hold, AM would play everything. Otis Redding, and then you'd play a Karen Carpenter song right afterward. It didn't matter. And then FM, when they started splitting the signals, is when segmentation really became alive on radio because you got a chance to 
make up all these narrow casting narrow casting okay there it is and i think that narrow casting has done a lot to affect media's perspective on how you look at people and how you put people into boxes one of the most craziest things i've seen while i was in the record business it was the mid 90s and rap music started to take off the crazy thing was that the pop stations didn't play rap music they probably let one in the playlist then they started letting two in but they were much more focused on Britney Spears and that stuff rather than the rap music. But all the local sponsors, they wanted a return, and they knew that the young people were listening to rap. So they started this format called Churban, Crossover Urban. It was a category of stations that had range that could play hip-hop music and some pop records. Hot 97 in New York was a Churban station. Right. Power 106 in L.A. was a Churban station and these were crossover urban stations and when i seen that i was like wow this industry is twisted when did you have this insight i mean this clearly fuels what you're doing fuels your agency yeah. fuels your marketing where did this insight come from living with my eyes open man i grew up i went to a catholic school there was five black kids in the school i was one of them 1986 i'm going to school and as much as everybody's driving irox and listening to billy idol they're all also listening to Run DMC. They're also listening to Beastie Boys. And they want to hear more. I didn't like Billy Idol's music. I didn't cross over that way. But there were songs that I got introduced to that I did like. I did like the Bangles. Like, I definitely liked the Bangles right. record, right? So there were things that I started being introduced to. And I'm like, once we remove these walls, we have more in common than the world actually realizes. And I think that's what led me to that insight. And really, that's what led me... That path was the path I walked my whole career with, understanding that if you started the conversation from what we have in common versus what we have in different, you'll actually be surprised at all of the commonalities you have, and you can build on top of that. Once I started going into the working world and started seeing people being separated, I didn't understand that because that's not the way I was in school. That's not how I was in my social life at school. That's not how I was on my football team at school. And music was the thing. That was clearly the connector. Let's go back a little bit. Your mom was a nurse. Your dad mm -hmm. was a merchant marine. Immigrants from Trinidad. Yeah. So your first experience must have been understanding and navigating a culture right there in Queens. Did that play a role in this? I mean, Well, yeah. When we first moved to Queens, we lived right near Belmont Racetrack. And we were one of the few black families on the block. It was a block of 50 houses. I used to count the houses. It was a really <laughs> long block. The neighborhood reversed the gentrified. There was like... Only two white people left by the time the early 80s came, and it was a bunch of Caribbean people like us, and they started living in that area, in Queens Village. Things started to change when more people from the Caribbean moved into the neighborhood. Let me stay in your past a little bit. You were a high school football player, certainly had dreams of the pros. Then you had an injury, changed all that, put yeah. you on another path. You attended a number of colleges, and you joined this very famous club, of which I'm also a member of, the College Dropouts. Why did you leave college? I was bored, Bob. There was nothing in it that made me feel. I didn't have the desire to be a good student. I didn't care enough. I didn't even know what I was going to do, but I knew I couldn't do that. You were a kid that shoveled snow, erected tents at flea markets, delivered newspapers. Sang Christmas carols. carols everything, everything. Sold everything. fire extinguishers. Everything, man. And then at 19, you were actually signing up people for mortgages. You were in the real estate business. I was in the real estate business, yeah. So how do you make the jump from the real estate business to the music business? How did you get that idea? 
during that time, I had met a girl. She was in the Army Reserves, and there was another guy in the Army Reserves with her who told her about making dance records. And You can put, like, $2,000 and cut a dance record. You make, like, five, ten thousand 10,000 pieces of vinyl, and you can sell them at record stores, and you can sell them to DJs. And there were these dance artists that were looking for guys to do that. As an entrepreneur, you look under every single rock. Anything could be an opportunity. You don't know. You can't predict where the opportunity is going to come from. So I took the meeting with the guy, and he happened to be the DJ of Kid and Play. I didn't need anything because I was actually doing good. I had like $42,000 in the bank. Yeah. And you were how old? 19. Wow. I didn't need anything from them. So I was around them, and I didn't need money from them. I just wanted to be around to see what they were doing. Fast forward, I became Kid and Play's road manager, and that's how I got into the music business. So you go to RCA. You wind up as A&R. Skip Miller. National director. Joe Galante. How old were you? You were a kid. Joe Galante took my phone call. You just called him and... I just called Joe Galante. Cold, cold called him. Joe Galante had come from Nashville to country, New York. Country. I knew Joe decades ago from country music. That's crazy. RCA. And yeah. I didn't know who he was. Somebody said, there's a guy named Joe Galante who's giving out deals. I called Joe Galante up. He takes a meeting with me. And pays me $4,000 a month as a consultant. I'm literally sitting on my mother's step, living at home, getting $4,000 a month. I couldn't even believe this. The check just kept on coming. And then he introduced me to the guy who ran the head of black music, more segmentation, Skip Miller. Skip Miller was a former Motown guy. Yeah, sure. He came to run it. And they turned me from a consultant into an employee. And they hired me as an A&R executive converted me so we're on segmentation 1995 they shut down the black music division why did they shut it down because the record business didn't know anything capital shut down the black music department rca shut down the black music department columbia had just got rid of def jam michael bolton was still selling records all the things that they knew was still working so you know bob how it goes people get accustomed to the thing they know they can get fat off of that. Why are they going to worry about tomorrow? They can just keep eating off of yesterday. They don't even know who these guys look like. What are they They were wearing yellow pants. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want those guys around, and they really got rid of it. They didn't know the difference between good and great. And I remember the day I was trying to get this one producer the songs to do a remix for, and he kept on blowing off the meeting. This guy's meeting me at 10 a.m. I'm going to meet Skip Miller at 11 a.m. The guy I'm supposed to meet at 10 a.m. does not show up till 11. He walks into my office. He's on the phone. He had just got into some trouble with his girlfriend. And he's like, Josh, hushing me. And I'm like, look, I'll come back. They're shutting down the black music department. Skip Miller fires me. So when I come back in my office, this guy is sitting there. There's no remix to give him. I said, I just got fired. He goes, well, my girlfriend just broke up with me. I said, uh, well, what are you going to do? He goes, why don't you manage me? And I managed him. And we went on a run, the track masses. We produced I Rule the World, that whole first Nas album, discovered Foxy Brown, made LL Cool J's. Mary J. Blige. Big album, Mary J. Blige album. We went on a run for like five years, Candy Rain, for Soul For Real. We went on a run making records, and that ended up becoming my, my thing, managing producers. I literally got fired, went back to the office, and my career was sitting in the room. Your future was there sitting in the room so how did you rejoin 
a major record company. What was that appeal? You go back to Sony, yeah. senior VP of A&R, yeah. president of Urban Music, yeah. pretty well, heady stuff. Well, what happened was Nas takes off. The guys at Columbia know nothing about black <laughs> music. They could sit around and they act like they have great ears by closing their eyes and, you know, when a song plays, like as if they're doing something. You, you, you ever met guys who do that? They, <laughs> they close their eyes. You're like, oh my God, you're not Clive Davis. Just don't close your eyes. <laughs> So they're sitting there closing their eyes and shit. We want you to come on and do this at Columbia. And I'm like, nah. And they offered me some money. And I remember looking at the guy's face like, yo, you crazy? I'm not doing that. And then Mariah wanted to work with the producers, Mariah Carey. And Mariah was really running black music at Columbia. She knew everything. She could close her eyes because she knew exactly what the fuck she was listening to. She said, I want to work with those talented guys. And because I managed them, Matola wanted to sit down with me. Her husband, Tommy, was the CEO yeah, sure. of Sony at the time. And when I sat down with Tommy, he was looking at the guy who ran Epic and the guy who ran Columbia and said, they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Those guys are trying to work Freddie Jackson. No disrespect to Freddie Jackson, but R&B music was sort of on its way out. And he needed the next guy. And he gave me a job overseeing both of these things. Meanwhile, these guys are older guys, and they're like, they weren't mentors of mine, but I certainly felt weird acting like I was their boss. But they certainly couldn't sign anything and make any real decisions unless I got a chance to see it, whether they knew it or didn't know it. How old were you then? 26. This must have been wildly heady stuff. It gets wilder. Okay, let's give it to me. Let's get wilder. So I start doing that, work with Mariah. It's fantastic. She takes off. I'm going to give Mariah Carey credit right here. Nobody wanted Old Dirty Bassett on the Fantasy Remix at Sony. They didn't under, even understand that. That was Mariah Carey's decision, and she put everything on the line to make that call. She had everything to lose. She didn't need that audience. She didn't need a rap audience. People do it now because they need it. Madonna does a song with the guy from Ray Shermerd because she needs that. When Mariah Carey was doing that, she didn't need that shit at all. She was doing it because she knew that shit was fresh. She put that format in play, and she risked it all. Her husband didn't want it. Her label head didn't want it. She did that. She brought black music to Columbia, and a lot of people came there because they wanted to be around that orbit that she had, for sure. I sat there. I did it for a while. Everything was cool for a minute, and then Jimmy Iovine came, and he wanted me. How did Jimmy know about you? What was your relationship? Okay, so here goes that one. There's a guy named John McClain. Very famous at AM Records. He was at Interscope early when they started it. He also made Janet Jackson's albums when she was at AM. He hired Jimmy Jim, Terry Lewis. I don't know who your audience is listening, but they're going to get full musicology. That's what we want. John brings me out to meet with him because he wants our producers to produce records for Interscope. I go out there, two, three days go by, no John McClain. And they have me stay at the Lowe's in Santa Monica. Day one, it's like, okay, cool. I'm hanging out, free day, free hotel, whatever. Day three, it's like, what the fuck is this? John's assistant calls Jimmy and says to Jimmy, John has some guy sitting in a hotel for three days. So I go sit down with Jimmy, and we start talking about music. Within a week, Jimmy offers me John's job. That's how it happened. That's how it happened. Wow. No regrets leaving Sony. No, well, now listen to this. So I had one year left on my Sony deal, and Jimmy signs me a year out. The first year as a consultant. 
but I'm already signed for the next four years beyond that consultant. It's like the Nets deal with Kevin Durant. They know the year out, but they got the next three years. So my year out, I'm at Sony knowing I'm going right to Interscope. I do one or two things at Interscope. One of the things I had to do was relocate their New York office. So I put their office right near Sony. So I'd run back and forth between Sony and Interscope. And And Sony was okay. Sony didn't know. Sony had no idea. I would run from 55th Street to 57th Street for meetings that first year all the time because I was setting up my entire office over there. It was crazy. I was 28, 27, 28. You show up at Interscope. You've got amazing artists, DMX, Enrique, Eminem, <laughs> Dr. Dre. No? No. When I got to Interscope, my job was to get rid of all the things that wasn't working. So tell me what wasn't working. Dr. Dre and Death Row had broken up. So Dr. Dre was building Aftermath. He hadn't yet signed Eminem. And the first project he did was a project that I put together called The Firm. It sold a million records. It should have been bigger because it was a super group. Right, sure, I remember The um, But it definitely gave him his start. He's always been grateful with me for that, for sure. What was your vision for it? I didn't really have a vision for it. That would be unfair for me to say that. I just knew that being around Jimmy, I learned a lot. But the thing I brought there that was important was he wanted more what was happening in New York. So I brought over a group, the Rough Riders, and that brought over Swiss and a bunch of artists that was important at that time. And that was a big deal for us. That was a big deal. That mattered a lot. And then I went with Jimmy to go sign Enrique Iglesias. Ricky Martin had just taken off, and we wanted to get into the Latin game, and Enrique had just got out of his deal. And Edgar Brothman owned Universal at the time, and he really wanted that artist. Basically said, we're willing to pay $40 million for it. It was like that kind of money. And I remember I was the guy running around trying to entertain him better than everybody else. I brought him out to the Hamptons. I you know, took him to different places or whatever. Anyhow, we ended up signing him. The first record we broke was actually on the Wild Wild West soundtrack. was a song called Balamos. So let's go to movies. You get in the movies about this time. Wild Wild West, Men in Black. Yes, I did Men in Black at Sony. Right. And what happened was I just knew that back then movie soundtracks had big recording budgets because they were part of the P&A. They basically put 2 or $3 million dollars towards marketing the movie, towards the soundtrack. So if you were the record company who got that soundtrack, you'd essentially get marketing money from the movie company that was unrecoupable. So it was great marketing. And back then, people would buy shit. I mean, people put the Dawson's Creek soundtrack. (laughs) I mean, that had a big hit on it. People would buy anything. So Men in Black sold, and I was in the Will Smith business. So when I went to Interscope, I said, let's do Wild Wild West over at Interscope. And the first song we did was Balamos. And it was huge. Huge. And then right after that was Will Smith's Wild Wild West. So they both came out around the same time. And that was another big mark in my career because I, I did it and I got credit for doing it. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. 
Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math and Magic. We're here with Steve Stout. You had this incredible career in music at sort of this moment that music was going through a major change. You were one of the leaders of that change. And then you jumped to advertising. You start this agency with Peter Arnell, legendary ad yeah. person. What did you think advertising needed that you had? The record business didn't know the difference between good and great at that time. There were guys who I felt that weren't my equivalent in talent making the same amount of money I was making. That didn't bother me so much, but it made me feel like I actually went through depression, I think. Because I'm like, what is this? If this is about paying some black executive who can speak to guys on the street and speak to the white guys at corporate and gather as much hip-hop acts and R&B acts as possible, 
and everybody gets paid $2 million to do that, then I don't want to do that. And that's just how I am. I learned that from my dad. The principles didn't add up to me. And it was all about the principles. $2 million is a lot of money, but I couldn't make it make sense. So why advertising? Because after Will Smith put out Men in Black and sold all those albums and ultimately sold all those glasses, and Peter Arnell, Peter Arnell was, was the guy who the did Ray the product Band. placement for Ray-Ban with the glasses. So I met somebody who said, that's good that you're making money selling the music, but you can actually be entrepreneurial and sell the things around the music. Who are your clients at Pass? Reebok, I know, was one. I did Reebok and McDonald's. So my big thing was, I'm loving it for McDonald's and Reebok, the Jay-Z sneaker, the 50 Cent sneaker, the Pharrell sneaker, and how do you converge hip-hop and sport and put that together? So you guys sold Pass. Yeah. Omnicom. Yeah. 200 million or so was yeah. reported number. Why'd you sell it? I mean, you guys were on fire. I was 32 years old. I made a boatload of money. <laughs> Maybe that's the reason. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about money again for the rest of my life. That was how I thought about it. So you jumped into advertising. You have this immediate success. You monetize it very quickly. Putting aside the money and the interesting stuff, what did you learn about advertising on this first foray into it? The, the emperor was butt-ass naked. That all these guys running around didn't know shit about anything. I'd listen to UC TV commercials that had fake rap music in the background, and casting was really bad, like four white guys and one ambiguous black guy. They were supposed to be friends. And I was sitting there going, this is all wrong. This stuff isn't really good. But nobody that can make it good has a seat at the table. Why didn't they have a seat at the table? Segmentation. <laughs> there was an, an older generation of African-Americans that were doing African-American creative agencies. They were incentivized to do stereotypical African-American work. So it'd be like a car driving, get the new Chrysler, blah, blah, blah. You can hang with your homies. Some stupid ass shit that's not real. And they would do that because that's what the companies would buy. Because that's what they thought was what African-Americans wanted. And I'm like, that's not it. I'm going to take everything I learned from the music business and bring it to advertising. And that's why I called the company Translation. Because I was going to translate the values of what I've seen in culture of Fortune 500 companies. How did you build the agency? You're really starting this one now that's on the, your I own. Mean, this is your baby. This is me. This is your baby. This is me in a desk and... Two assistants in an office and a fish tank. When I left Universal, Jimmy and Doug Morris, they took a percentage of the business. It was a small percentage. And they gave me, I think, like two years of I could stay in there and do it. So I had a fish tank, two desks, two assistants, and, and me. And I went and got busy. My first early clients was Hewlett Packard, which was fantastic. How did you get Hewlett Packard? This is an unlikely company you would expect well, so to McDonald's be. So McDonald's came to me first. Because McDonald's, I'm loving it, I did at Arnell Group. Right. So when I left, McDonald's said, we're retaining you immediately. Don't worry about it. You're good. Interscope was a lead generator for me. That's how I used them. I used them as a lead generator. So if I needed any production done, I'd use them. But like, if somebody called them and said, could we put blah, blah, blah in an ad, they'd say, you should look at this company translation. And I went, Jimmy and Doug would do that. Jimmy would do that, or Jimmy's company would do that. Steve Berman. Yeah, sure. So they called. Carly Fiorina wanted to do something with music, and it was cool. They let me into the meeting. They had just did a deal. Steve Jobs did one of his 
Steve Jobs liked deals to them. HP made their own version of the iPod, which looked exactly like the iPod. He just basically got them to distribute the iPod. He got a little logo that was really small somewhere in the back. They couldn't do anything so that you'd go buy it. What Steve Jobs wanted was the iPod to have distribution, and he didn't want to build a distribution team. So he used HP's distribution to give them the HP version of the iPod. They may have made a dollar margin on it, but it was them being cool. And he got distribution in Circuit City and Best Buy and everything because HP had the sales team. So I sit with Carly Fiorina in her ad agency at the time, and I said, Carly, when you unveil this, what are you going to unveil? Everybody's selling them ads. No one thought about the core problem. I said, what we're going to do, we're going to use your printing business, and we're going to make customizable tattoos so that people can customize their iPod. We're going to go back to Interscope, and we're going to get all of the artists on Interscope to give us their image and likeness so that we can actually make these tattoos. So HP did the iPod deal. Not to sell iPods, but to sell printing ink and these sheets. One of my best ideas. Didn't catch fire, but it caught fire enough to put me on a fast track to help me grow my company. And by the way, it was one of those things that, you know, it came like this. I looked at it. I'm like, nobody has an answer. But if you take this thing back to printing, which is where they made 90% of their profits, they did this loss leader deal in order to go back. But no one had that idea and what to print. I went and did deals with the NBA Major League Baseball, Interscope. I still have this stuff. And it won like Time Magazine, idea, you know, one of top 10 ideas, these printable skins. They called them skins. It was 2004 or five. So you've done this remarkable job. You've launched Translation, now your own agency. 2011, you release a book, The Tanning of America, How Hip-Hop Created a Culture That Rewrote the Rules of the New Economy. 2014, VH1 makes a four-part documentary out of it, The Tanning of America, One Nation Under Hip Hop. What was the big insight here? Is this about segmentation or is this about beyond that original What happened was the world started to see it at this time. There was this day where they would look at a black kid wearing tight jeans and a skateboard and he was looked at like he was a sellout. He's listening to rock music, forget it. And there was this white kid in Greenwich. I used to think of Tommy Hilfiger's son. Wearing his hat backwards, a Yankee hat backwards, the baggy pants, and people would call him a wigger. Terrible words. And I'm like, they're not that, you idiot. They grew up listening to hip-hop music. They grew up where these worlds collided. Fred Durst is not a wigger. Fred Durst grew up listening to Run DMC. What are you talking about? You guys are wrong. You guys don't know what you're talking about. You're sitting back growing up off of Bruce and Bob Dylan and all that, judging these kids. These kids grew up listening to different music. Music drives cultures, my point. They're sitting there saying all these things about these kids, and I wanted to write a book that not only stopped them from shaming it, but I wanted to put a flag in the ground that the world has changed and that segmentation is over. The cover of the book is the Census Bureau form, and every box is checked. One of the greatest things I learned on that journey of writing that book and doing the documentary was I actually went to the U.S. Census Bureau, and I got a meeting with a guy who ran it. His name is Steve Jost. And I walk in. I'm like, Steve, I'm writing a book called The Tanning of America and this, that, and the third. And he's he's like a 45-year-old white guy at the time. He says, I know everything you're talking about. I said, why? He goes, my daughter's 27 years old, getting married next week to an African-American. 
I can tell you everything about this. We sat down and we became great, great friends. The U.S. Census Bureau wants this information to be shared. So Steve would go with me to go visit clients and the government would pay for it. And I'd do my spiel to a client about my company and translation and changing demography. And then I'd break out the guy who runs the Census Bureau to back me up. And the government was paying for this. <laughs> they didn't take a piece of your business, did they? No, no. They didn't take a piece of my business. <laughs> I mean, he pitched Budweiser. He pitched State Farm. State Farm changed how they were zoning rentals. They had it all wrong. That's amazing. And this was really early in this data science. Nobody called it anything. It was called obvious. <laughs> when we talk about math and magic, one of the yeah. hot things today is pattern recognition. Pattern recognition. Has this is, always been at the key of you? I don't even know how people don't have that. It's the first thing I see. I can't even not see that. So in spite of you being a creative guy, you're also a math mind. Yeah. I tell my daughter all the time, math is life. If you understand math and you understand the logic that leads you to the process of how you got to that answer, you could apply that to anything in life. So you built a team in this era too. Clearly one of your skill sets is building a great team. How do you think about finding talent to work with you? And what's your core concept of a team? I've been hit or miss on building a great team, to be fair. I've been really strong at finding people who believe in the values. I rank that really high, really high versus your actual skill set. Even when building translation in the beginning, I couldn't get typical advertising guys from Gray or any of the advertising companies, BBDO, because they didn't understand I was selling a different product. When I started Carol's Daughter, I couldn't just hire people from the current beauty business selling a different product. With United Masters, we're building this convergence of culture, technology, and storytelling with this combined companies of Translation United Masters together. So I got to find different people, people that understand ad tech, people that understand a hot song on the street, and people who understand how to write a 60-second commercial. And they have to work together. They have to work together. So convergence of these skill sets only come together if you find people who believe in it and have empathy. I also, in the midst of all this, I built a beauty business called Carol's Daughter. A woman from Brooklyn who built a business, selling it out of her house, yet nobody would invest in her. And you had African-American women going to Sephora, but had nothing to buy. They wanted to go in the store because it's Sephora, it's hot. But yet there's nothing that speaks to them. There's not a shade of foundation that speaks to them. And there's not a fucking hair product that can deal with their hair type. Nothing. But yet they walk in the store to buy lip gloss or something because they want to be seen with a Sephora bag. That bag, that shit hurts me. Part of what I do as a business guy is connect with a story that feels like an uphill battle that with money, effort, and time will persevere. Like my favorite movie is Rocky. So I try to find Rocky in every single fucking story I can find. Where's the Rocky? And once I can find it, whether it be Carol's daughter or the advertising business or now artists with United Masters, I wake up in the morning fighting that fight. I want everybody to see it as clear as I see it, that we can win this fight. It's going to turn because it doesn't make any sense. And things that don't make any sense have an expiration date. So 
obviously we here love audio, but not only is radio stronger than ever, podcasting, which we're doing right now, is taking the world by storm. Smart speakers are the new home radio. Spotify is the new tower records. We've made this migration from physical to downloads to streaming music. How do advertisers need to adjust their approach to being in sync with the consumer who, by the way, loves and embeds audio in their life? An artist's social media is the new MTV. And Spotify, Apple Music is the new Tower Records. And radio is the new radio. Radio is always, you know. It's the companion. We think of ourselves not at the music. We're your friend. Radio is always driven by the personalities that it creates. You create great personalities. You bet. You got great radio. You bet. The truth of the matter is, I talk about this with retail. In the beginning, you'd go on e-commerce, you'd see, you know, a picture, and then, you know, you'd buy it, and it was clunky, it didn't work. Then all of a sudden, they started getting better, like zoom in, zoom out, turn it, guy model to the side, turn it to the left. Then uh, Net-A-Porter came out, and they put editorial. You didn't have to all wear one thing. It'd be, you know, this top is from one brand, this is from another brand, and it'd be some editorial about it. And that became a better shopping experience. And then all of a sudden, it stopped right there. That's it. It's optimized. E-commerce really hasn't moved from that. You go down to all these storefronts, and everybody's worried about what's happening on e-commerce, these windows, nobody's doing anything. Like no innovation in the windows. You have this physical location, you have glass this big, with all this technology, why aren't you doing anything? Why isn't the glass an Instagram screen? The same thing happened with radio. The advertising guys aren't being creative with the format. Some of the work I've done in radio, you... Well, I know, we've done some of it with you, brilliant work. Well, one of the things I did... When Interscope launched, they wouldn't play Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg on the radio. They would not play it. So what Jimmy did was Steve Berman, they went and bought the last commercial spot in a pod and did not say anything but played 60 seconds yeah, it's the song. of the song. Nothing but a G-Thing baby. People thought that was the song. They didn't know it was a commercial. And that's how the song took off. Right. I went to Bill Wrigley Jr., and pitched them an idea. We were going to remake the Double Mint jingle. We remade the Double Mint jingle. This is the best work done in radio. I could play this shit for you. Blow your mind. I made the song called Forever. Chris Brown Forever. And he says, double your pleasure, double your fun in the song. We rewrote the Double Mint jingle using that same forever melody. And then I did the exact same thing. I bought 60 seconds, let it play like it was forever. So when the song played, it all sounded like forever. And then it changed into the double mint jingle. The song went number one. The song went number one. And it was a jingle that double mint owned. Thinking about radio and being colorful and artful with it and figuring out how to tie the music in with the advertising in a way that it feels entertaining, but yet informative. So you stay engaged. How do you make it all sound like, holy shit. I actually want to be engaged. If it doesn't pull you in, you don't care about it. Before we end, I just want to hit music industry really quickly. You have United Masters, whole new way of thinking about artists. How does this fit into the future of the music business? I think the future of the music business is artists going direct. It's a DIY world. The amount of songs going up on Spotify and Apple every single day keeps growing tremendously. They're not coming through major labels. They're coming through different platforms that are giving these artists a shot to be heard. 
And with United Masses, what I wanted to do was do that at scale. How do you bring some technology to make it easy? We just launched the app on July 4th. It went, took off, went to number 29 in the app store. Why? There was a bunch of artists that said, how can I get a song? If you send me a song on my iMessage, how can I get it from my iMessage to Spotify? We're the only guys doing that right now. Your engineer sends you a song, and you go, man, this is ready to go. Within 30 seconds, your song's up on Spotify. That's the kind of innovation that I want to bring to the music business for the DIY world. I think there's a place for the legacy labels, but um, I think that they have never been big and speedy on innovation. We're going to continue to push innovation forward, and we have hits. Labels are coming in, paying $7 million, $8 million for brand new artists, just maintain market share. So we're disrupting. And when I put that ad tech on top of it, we're going to really show them where to make money. I think the record business needs to become the media business. And if I can turn the record business into the media business, then we're doing it. So we always end this, each episode, with a salute to the math and magic of marketing. If you think about it, who's the greatest math person in the business you've encountered? Doug Morris. From sheer creative, who's the best magician? Jay-Z. Steve Stout, you were inducted into the Advertising Hall of Achievement. You were at Age Executive of the Year in 2013. Recently, Fast Company named you as one of the most creative people in business. You're a brilliant man. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. It was very good. Thank you. Here's a few lessons I learned during my conversation with Steve. One, if you really want to cut through the noise, stop focusing on what separates us and instead figure out what we have in common. In Steve's view, market segmentation is an outdated and often misguided approach that puts people into boxes that don't really reflect reality. Two, surround yourself with people who share your values. In Steve's case, that meant building a team who wanted to fight uphill battles, or as he put it, find the Rocky in every single story. Three, Steve believes music drives culture. If you want to see where things are headed, people's listening habits are a smart place to start. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels 
challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel, And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.